Today's reading is from Romans 2, verses 1 to 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Thanks so much, Chris. Well, friends, uh, let me add my welcome to Matt's earlier on. Great to be gathered together, working through uh, this part of God's Word that continues to have some strong words for us to take on board, doesn't it? But I don't know about you, I just can't stand hypocrites. Just can't stand hypocrites. The way they go on and on about someone else's flaws, but they won't acknowledge their own. They're so judgy, as if they're always right, as if they don't make the same mistakes. You know, sometimes they're the quiet ones, aren't they? They're just quietly there, looking down their nose on everybody else. And then there are the mouthy ones that just go on and on and on about it, even in front of a crowd. Goodness me. Don't get me started on social media, right? It makes you wonder if they're trying to hide something. But really, who are they kidding? They think they've got everyone else fooled? I don't know. Maybe they've, maybe they've fooled themselves into thinking they've got it all sorted out. Surely not God, though. I mean, hypocrites. Who can stand them? Of course, that'd be pretty hypocritical for me to go on ranting like that, wouldn't it? judging the judgy ones. But let's be honest, I think we hear it in its various forms all of the time. 
And sometimes it is the quiet ones, silently in a conversation here. Sometimes it's the loud ones out there in the media, on the social media, in various other points. But I think all too often in our own hearts, and dare I acknowledge it, from our own mouths, we hear it. But the passage that we've just read in Romans says that there's no, there's no room for that sort of talk and that sort of thought in the Christian life. And there is a really important take-home for us all. Now, as we get started, let me recap where we're up to in Romans so far, because it, it actually does help us to see how really rich chapter 1 has led us into where we are in chapter 2. We've read that the Apostle Paul was writing to Christians in Rome to explain why he was really keen to visit them. He was really keen to visit them because he was eager to preach the gospel to them. And if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down a reminder for yourself, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, as a wonderful summary point that he got to, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation because it reveals God's righteousness, that is, by faith. And then in the second half of chapter 1, last week, we, we read that that righteousness of God revealed is necessary because the wrath of God is being revealed on humanity who have suppressed the truth of God and we live our lives failing to honour him and to thank him as God with all of the consequences that follow. We read that they are without excuse when they face God's judgment because they have turned their back on God and so as we get to the end of chapter 1, Paul's been very intentional in the way that he's helped us to talk about them because the humble reader will recognise themselves in the description of unrighteous people, of sinful humanity. But the proud reader, the self-righteous reader, they'll only see them over there with all the their problems. And of course, the self-righteous hypocrite, oh, oh, they will smugly shake their head. Mm, yes, all of that terrible behaviour that those people do until Paul, Paul points out their problem, which might be our problem. Chapter 2, verse 1. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, you are without excuse. It is a direct rebuke of self-righteous pride. It's lovely that Paul's actually chosen to use the same word as he started off with the problem that all of humanity shares, you are without excuse. The same problem as those people that we might judge. We too are without excuse. I've got a little outline for us here, Joel, on the screen. And if you find it helpful to have access to such things, it's, it's on the Sunday Hub on the website, just to see where we're going. Verses 1 to 5, a brief lesson in self-righteous pride. And then verse 6 to 16, uh, and a really important perspective to have on the future and then we'll think through, actually, how does that play out for us today? Thanks, Joel. You see, this is the lesson that Paul needs to drill into us. And God, I think, is doing this for us today too. Chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You who pass judgment do the same things. You hypocrites. <laughs> And I don't know how you feel as you hear that read. But I think you can imagine that the self-righteous reader of Paul's letter to the Romans kind of bristling at the suggestion, no, I don't. I don't do any of those things that you've just listed off in chapter 1. 
I'm a good, law-abiding citizen and a pretty well-behaved Christian too. I do not do the same things. And they might be right. Maybe they haven't murdered anyone after all. That was on the list in chapter 1. But surely no one can claim complete innocence of everything set out in chapter 1. Behaviours like gossip and slander or attitudes like arrogance and envy. No one can claim innocence, but we do like to minimise them in ourselves, don't we? And one of the best ways to minimise them in ourselves is to magnify them in others. And I think actually that's why no one likes the hypocrite. Because it's, it's just so arrogant, it shows such contempt for other people. Such pride in yourself is only possible through kind of disrespecting others. But actually, did you notice that that's not, that's not what Paul draws our attention to at all? As Paul notes in verse 2, there's no debate about whether such attitudes and behaviours are wrong. Everyone agrees on that. The issue is that in highlighting another person's flaws while you're overlooking your own, you're actually showing contempt for God. Verse 3, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness? You see, the the core issue for the self-righteous person is exactly the same as the core issue for those people who do those terrible things outlined in the end of chapter 1. It's the core issue that they fail to treat God as God. We saw this summed up in chapter 1, verse 21. Let me read that for you. If you've got it open, I'll get you a, a minute to find it with your finger. Chapter 1, verse 21, the core issue for humanity, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. And the self-righteous person who looks down their nose at the gossips and the slanderers and the sexually immoral and all of those other obviously sinful people, the self-righteous person has exactly the same problem in their heart, a failure to treat God as God. As Paul says here, do you, a mere human being think you will escape God's judgment. A mere human. You think you can outwit God. You might get away with convincing others that you've got it all together. You might even fool yourself. But you can't deceive God. What contempt. It's a strong word that Paul uses, isn't it? But actually, did you notice even then, perhaps surprisingly... It's not just that you've got contempt for God's justice or his power that he will judge. It's not just that you've got a contempt for his ability to see through your facade. Self-righteousness is showing contempt for God's kindness, his forbearance and his patience, Paul says. Because you see, every time we don't experience immediate punishment for our sin... That is an expression of God's kindness. Do you see what happened there? Like, you know, every time we sin, God could just go, but He doesn't. So, every time that we try and minimize our own flaws, magnify the flaws of others, not only are we pretending that, oh, maybe I could get away with it, but we're overlooking the fact that we're in a grace period, a period when we can actually step back from 
an irreversible consequence. I was trying to think, you know, what, what do we do in life that has you know, this sort of grace period that helps us just to work this through, think about this? It's a little bit like when you purchase a house, you sign the contracts, and then you've got a two-day cooling-off period in which people can kind of step back from the potentially very rash decision that they've just made. It's called a cooling-off period. We could call it a grace period. It's, you know, the deed has been done, contracts have been signed, but you've got, a, you've got a, period, a period of time when you can come back before you are completely financially liable for the purchase that you've made. And there is a grace period in which you can come to your senses and realise that there's no way that you can afford the mortgage that you've just signed up for. You can, you can step back from the deal. And I think the point is that we're in a grace period with God. We've sinned against him, but he's given us the opportunity to turn back to him before the irreversible consequences are locked in. And the reason that God doesn't rain down instant punishment for our sins that we so carefully hide is because in his kindness, he's been patient with us. He's working towards the goal of our repentance. And actually, that's the point that that Paul is making here, that we just have to get into our minds. Repent, we should. Because there will come a time when the grace period has expired and and we will be held accountable verse 5 but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed these are heavy words and sometimes churches are known for the sort of the fire and brimstone talk about the day of judgment that is to come And yet we need to actually be honest that this is the perspective that God gives us. This is the truth that God has to say to us. But I also want us to hear God's goal in all of this, God's goal in human history. He's a God of love and his goal is restored relationship with his beloved creatures. God's given us that goal. He is being patient. He's being kind because his desire is for relationship that comes about through repentance. And we see God's timeline too. Restored relationship now before it's too late. You see, it's not simply that God is going to run out of patience. Oh, I've been waiting, 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 waiting. No, now's the time. It's not that he will run out of patience. It's simply that he has a plan to limit the damage of human sinfulness and to free creation, all of creation, from its impact. So there will come a day when Jesus will return and he'll bring this age to an end and he's going to hit the go button on creation 2.0. You see, in chapter 1, we read of God's wrath being revealed in the present and it's a warning from him to sort out our relationship with him before that future day. Here in chapter 2, it's described in pretty ominous terms, isn't it? The day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. But God's goal is restored relationship. He loves you, and he wants relationship with you. He loves your neighbours and your friends. He wants relationship with them. God's goal is restored relationship. God's timeline is set by that coming day of his judgment. And actually in the midst of the weight of that, this is helping us to see what is wonderfully good news about the gospel. 
Because the gospel announces, as we've already heard from Romans chapter 1, that Jesus is Lord, but it does so with the announcement of this wonderful grace period. Yes, Jesus is Lord now, but instead of instant destruction for our sins, the gospel announces that Jesus is the Lord who has come to save and to make a way for us to turn back to God, to turn away from our failure to treat God as God, to turn instead to Jesus, giving him the respect and the thanks that he's due and accepting from him the gift of his forgiveness. You see, that's the wonderfully good news of the gospel, that it comes with a grace period. Time to step aside from our proud facade of self-righteousness to fess up to our hypocrisy and to take refuge in his grace poured out at the cross. Because at the heart of hypocrisy and our self-righteousness, that's the issue. Instead of taking refuge at the cross, we take refuge in our attempt to look just that little bit better than our neighbour. Okay, so that's Paul's lesson in human self-righteousness. Um, Joel, can you flash up for us uh, the summary that I've put here? Because I think there's, there's a lot here, but it actually boils down to some pretty simple ideas. There's a statement. You cannot convince God that you are righteous by pointing out the unrighteousness of others. There's a context. God is giving a chance to turn back to him before it's too late because his desire is relationship. And so the invitation is there. Repent. That's the big idea we can't miss. But as we saw in the outline, and to remind you of it again, thanks Joel, all of this hinges on actually having the right perspective on the future and it's a perspective that might feel quite confronting. It's actually a perspective that should give us every reason for hope though too. That there is a day to come when we will all be held accountable before God when justice will be done and that will be a good thing. You know, it's actually consistent with the teaching of the whole Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and especially Jesus himself spoke heaps about that coming day. But I think it's good for us to just kind of pause on that on a Sunday morning and realise, actually, when we're talking about a coming day of judgment, that is something that sounds so very strange to most of our non-Christian friends, unless they're thinking of some Hollywood, you know, Armageddon kind of movie, which is making fun of it. Because to their mind, there is just no reason for things to stop going on, just as they always have. And that's the basic assumption that our world operates from. So as an aside, I think that's really helpful for us to keep in mind when we're chatting with non-Christian family or friends. And maybe we're kind of thinking, we just, we just don't seem to be talking eye to, seeing eye to eye. We're talking cross-purposes. I'm just trying to understand, why, why doesn't my friend understand where I'm coming from in my priorities or... or why have they made the life choice that they have made? I think actually to realise that this is one of the fundamental perspectives on life and the world that so changes the way that we live. If life is just going to kind of roll on indefinitely forever, then sure, we'll live one way. But if we actually realise, God has said, there will come a time of accountability when justice will be done. That's, that's going to change things. You know, thinking through how we have those conversations with our non-Christian family friends um, and if you're not a Christian here today, we're delighted that you're here and we'd love to have that kind of conversation to wrestle with that if that's a question you have. That's all a topic for another time. 
But actually, as we come back to Romans chapter 2, I think it's that perspective that Paul really needs the Roman Christians to, to, to sit in for a little while, to wrestle with, because it is so vastly different to the world around them. That's why he takes the next 10 verses to unpack it further. You see, the reason that God calls us to repent is because there is there's a grace period that will come to an end. And that's especially significant if we're amongst the self-righteous, looking down on others. Because even if we think that we can fool others with our facade of good behaviour, well, we are the fool if we don't make the most of God's patience and kindness. So, verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they've done. It's a basic statement that's then unpacked in verses 7 through 10 because on the one hand, it leaves us all condemned because none of us have truly lived up to the description of of people in verses 7 and 9, persisting in good deeds worthy of eternal life. All of us are dependent on the mercy of God. And to underline his point, Paul states twice that this is true of both the Jew and the Gentile. Verse 11, because God does not show favouritism. And now the Jew-Gentile question, that might not be our kind of question or our experience, but it was certainly a live issue in the first century Roman church where the church was this real mix of of Christians that came from a Jewish background and those from non-Jewish or Gentile backgrounds. The Jews, they had the Old Testament law that set out how to live a life pleasing to God. They were God's chosen people, precious to Him. And that kind of status made it very tempting to sit kind of smugly, self-righteous, looking down on those ignorant Gentiles that didn't have the law. But no, Paul says, God does not show favouritism. And that's what he then unpacks in verses 12 through 15. God's judgment is fair. The Jews who have the law, they'll be judged according to what they know. The Gentiles who didn't have the law, well, they'll be judged according to what they know. And even by their own moral standards, they will fall short as their guilty conscience makes clear. And as verse 16 sums up, this will all take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. God's judgment will come when Jesus returns because Jesus is Lord of all and he will be the judge of all. And this is the kicker for the self-righteous person because actually God will judge even our secrets, the things that we think we've successfully hidden away from everybody else. Even secret things will be brought out into the open. And so the big idea, it's just double underlined. You can't deceive God who is kindly giving you a chance to turn back to him before it's too late. That's the simple explanation of a, of a really simple, challenging, big idea. But I actually think, and I think time permits me, yeah, that Paul had something else to say to the Christians in Rome. It's a subtle message of encouragement for the many faithful Christians who were there, to those who were humbly wrestling with their own sinfulness. I think Paul actually had a word of encouragement to those who did live lives of repentance, who were you know, really mindful of the coming day, knowing that their only hope was to take shelter in the cross. 
The first hint of that is found in verse 6, which, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, most of our English translations put verse 6 into quote marks. It's really helpful because it's, it's taken word for word from Psalm 62. If you're taking notes, jot down Psalm 62. If you're not taking notes, jot down Psalm 62 somewhere and go and have a read of it. Because in Psalm 62, there are two really clear groups of people on view and there's a key distinction in what they have done. On the one hand, there are those who they've tried to reject God's king. They've tried to reject his rule over their life and they've tried to, to, to trust in their own ability to get ahead in life. On the other hand, there are those who put their hope in God, who find their identity in God, who take refuge in God, who look to God for their salvation because they trust in his promises And so Psalm 62, which concludes with that statement, its final words say that God will repay each person according to what they have done. Well, the key aspect of what they've done in Psalm 62 is whether we turn to God in humble trust in his promises or turn away from him in arrogant rebellion. So when Paul writes to the Romans, yes, justice will come, God will repay each person for the things that they've done. He wants them to have ringing in their ears, in in their mind. Turn to him in faith. The second indication that Paul wants to encourage the humble believer is the slightly odd way that Paul describes the the godly life in verses 7 and and again in, in 10. He talks about it as a pursuit of glory and honour and immortality. Doesn't doesn't describe living as a godly Christian person anywhere else in his letters in that way. It's a bit odd. And then the reward that's described in verse 10 is of glory, honour and peace. They might seem like odd ways to describe godliness, except that they are exactly the terms that God used to describe his covenant relationship with his people in Deuteronomy chapter 26, Jeremiah chapter 33. They sound like numbers to us, you know, random parts of the Bible. They're really significant summary statements in the Old Testament of, of God's promises to his people. This is not just a picture of some unattainable, sinless perfection, although it is unattainable if in our self-righteousness we think we can just do it ourselves. Actually, what Paul's describing here is is a humble dependence on God's promise of grace. So he's done something really clever and so helpful for us here. Because in the midst of a stern rebuke of self-righteousness that we just can't shy away from, a warning of the coming day of judgment, at the same time, Paul offers this wonderful pastoral encouragement towards humble repentance. Keep on in humble repentance. It's a challenge to the proud and the self-righteous person, it's to spur them, to turn. Stop taking refuge in your own self-righteousness. Take refuge in the shelter of God's grace. At the same time, it's an encouragement to the humble heart of the faithful Christian that they might be spurred to continue in repentance. Knowing that at the cross of Christ... That's where God's justice and his mercy is just met in such beauty. So wherever we are today, and who am I to judge you? But wherever you sit, hear the encouragement to repent. You might need to repent from your 
proud self-righteousness. You might need to be encouraged. Keep repenting. Keep living with humility before the God that you trust. So what does it all look like today? Well, at its simplest level, I think it's the basic task of repenting of our own capacity for hypocrisy. And I want to share a couple of examples from my own life. Uh, when my wife, Peter, who can't be here today, although I did, I did vet this example with her before I um, planned to speak to you. She's just at home with some sick kids, unfortunately. But when my wife, Peter, speaks to me with a frustrated tone, tell you what, I take great exception to that. I let her know how unhelpful it is, how counterproductive it is to sorting out the problem at hand. I'll probably be able to point out how unfair she is at that point too. But if I speak to her in a frustrated tone, well, it's because I'm tired. It's because I'm stressed. It was probably justified by her behaviour, let's be honest. What hypocritical self-righteousness. Or another example that stays with the theme of my anger, and I say all of this with shame, brothers and sisters, but the other day someone dropped off something very kind on our doorstep, a gift dropped off, and my heart sank because I hadn't been out the door much longer before that to check the mail and do a couple of things, and I realised that the window of time when they could have dropped that off, they must have been hearing me yelling at the kids, because it was full volume. And to be honest, my instinctive reaction was not to repent of my anger, but to worry about what they thought of me. And that's pretty low, right? But it's actually even worse when I reflect on the way that I so easily judge others who are being harsh in their discipline of their kids. You see, my point is not to encourage you to follow my example at this point but to highlight just how easily we all fall into the pattern of this self-righteous hypocrisy. This passage, it's, it's been a spur for me, not only because I want to keep working on my temper, but because I am struck with how self-righteous I can be in it, looking down on others. And I think at the core of it, so often it's distracting myself from my own sin And I think, I hope at times, distracting God too. Now, of course, there are loads of other ways that this could apply. But I actually think one other area that's worth us reflecting on as a Christian community is the way that we were perhaps most confronted by last Sunday's passage with the really strong words that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 to describe human sexuality and sexual immorality. Because if there has been one area of terrible self-righteousness and and hypocrisy amongst Christians over the years, it is surely this. We are so quick to judge, so quick to condemn those people and the terrible things they do. We might do that quietly in our own minds, perhaps it happens out loud. These days on social media especially. You might see a theme, not a huge fan of anti-social media, but all it's doing is it's, it's laying bare our tendencies. And yet, as one great Christian author, Sam Albury, I've referenced a couple of his books before, as Sam has put it recently, and I want you to listen carefully to his phrasing, none of us are completely straight in our sexuality. None of us are completely straight 
in our sexuality, in the sense that we're all a bit broken, confused, disordered, sinful. Friends, we need to hear the warning of a passage like this and own up to that before God, instead of looking down our nose at others and repent. And friends, all of this is, as we work through this in chapter 2, it's actually unpacking that summary of the gospel that we read in chapter 1 to finish with this encouragement. Because in chapter 1 we read that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all people, whether your sin is obvious or cleverly disguised. So the invitation is, it's to repent. It's actually an invitation to turn from our pretty pitiful attempts to whitewash our sin and instead rely on the incredible power of God in the gospel to deal with our sin. We also read that the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. That in Jesus, we see the righteous character of God who who comes in mercy and kindness, in overflowing compassion for sinners like you and me. That he would lay down his life, not only for those who are open about their sin, but even for the self-righteous who've shown such contempt, Paul said, as to pretend that they're better than anyone else, that we are better than anyone else. That's the call to repent. It's not just a one-time event, but a lifetime of turning to that Jesus who shows us his righteousness and has the power to save. So let's turn to him.